everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Train Like a Trooper. We're so glad you're joining us. I am here with my co-host, Trooper Eric Foster, and we are joined today by Lieutenant Larry Saxon and Lieutenant Mike Rowe. They are two of our troopers that are still with us today that actually worked the Murrah Building bombing 26 years ago. Um, So we wanted to bring them in, kind of hear some of that history, the experience that they had, um, the lessons that have been learned by them, by the patrol, um, and just kind of kind of visit that, revisit that on this on this anniversary. And I appreciate both of you joining us. I know I've had some conversations with you. I'm sure that's not your favorite thing to talk about all the time, and so I know that it, it can be difficult. And we appreciate you guys coming in and agreeing and agreeing to talk to us about this. And um, Lieutenant Saxon, let's start with you and um, just kind of go through what what you remember from that day. You. You were about what? You said you were in Norman. Yes, I worked in the Norman area. Uh, I was, as a matter of fact, at a car wash. My car was going through the washer, and I was standing outside waiting. And I remember while looking up the TV and seeing the the news of a building on fire. Had no idea what it was. And about two minutes later, they called me on the radio and said, Adam 368, start towards downtown Oklahoma City and just report the command post. And... I really didn't know what was going, but as I'm going through downtown Oklahoma City, cars are running red lights, and I'm thinking, what are these people doing? You know, I'm getting ready to stop somebody, but, you know, because, again, I had no idea that an explosion had gone off. Um, I got there and uh, was assigned to a fixed post, uh, I, I don't remember, right across the street from the building by, uh, I think it would have been Major J- Davidson at that time, and he said, don't let anybody go in the building. And I was like, well, okay. And uh, later on, come to find out, uh, probably one of the things that bothered me the most was the first gentleman that tried to come up in the building. He wanted to go into the daycare because he had two kids in there or hurt or in there. And he wanted them out. And, of course, I was told not to let him in. Didn't let him in, didn't let him in, didn't let him in. Then later night on the news, I noticed it was uh, a guy on TV saying he couldn't find its children. And it was the same guy. And this guy ended up running for governor. His name's, uh, his last name's Denny. I can't remember his first name, but he eventually found his kids. They both had uh, traumatic head injuries, uh, but and they survived. And I think he's since uh, deceased. Craig Metcalf grabbed me by the arm, said, we're going in the building and we're pulling people out. And nine hours later, I came out. What do you remember most from being inside the building that day? To this day is hearing the like school bells. They were going off on every floor, and it just. I mean, every time I hear a school bell, it just it makes me sick at my stomach because they're just loud. And you there's like, you can't cut them off. Um, the dust probably, and I was there when the uh, lady was getting her leg amputated because they had to without any, any anesthesia and just, I say, then the rain, then the build shaking, uh, moving, uh, people yelling bomb, we'd take off running again, uh, seeing firefighters uh, coming down out of the buildings, just crying, just, uh, and I mean, we all cry, but you don't think firemen cry, you don't think troopers cry, and they were crying like, it's just, just unbelievable sight. Lieutenant Rowe, where where were you that morning? Where did you come from to respond to the building? I was actually working in the metro 
that morning, and they had just given me a uh, accident with injury, as we call a signal 82. Uh, supposedly was around I-44 in May, and I had just left uh, the I-40, I-35 junction and was headed across the crosstown, and I got to I-44 and turned north, and I was followed by my partner, uh, Trooper Joe Simpson, and uh, somewhere between 10th Street and 23rd Street is when the bomb went off. And it shook my car. My car physically shook and went sideways. And I grabbed my low band mic and I told Joe, I said, hey, I'll have to meet you at the wreck. I said, because I think I just had a blowout. And he answered back and said, no, all your tires are up. And I said, well, did you hear that? And he said, yeah, I don't know what it was. And about that time, the scanner in our cars just went crazy. You know, screaming, there's been an explosion downtown. Uh, start all EMS and police. And I stayed in it in my patrol car and kept going northbound. Joe took the off-ramp, turned around, went back the other way. But when I came around the curve up there at I-44 in May and turned back to the east, I could see that big black cloud going up in the sky. I mean, it was just an unbelievable sight. And I'm listening to the scanner. I'm listening to people scream into the their mics. And I put the pedal to the floor and I stayed in it all the way across 44 to 235, went southbound to 6th Street, took that ramp and ended up parking just north of the Murrah building, one block, uh, which would have been the east, northeast side of the, of the Murrah building, one block north of it. Parked my car, locked the doors, left the lights going, and I didn't see my car until 9, 10 o'clock that night. And I went down towards the Murrah building, and uh, the whole front of the building, all the cars were on fire. There's a giant crater in the ground. People walking around just with rags, with T-shirts on their heads, Lots of walking wounded from the debris and the flying glass. And uh, at first, we uh, didn't know what to do. I mean, we started congregating to the east side of the building, and they were we were setting up barricades, and uh, we were assisting with with control, traffic control, trying to keep people. And like Larry said, there were people coming wanting to get in uh, to get their kids. Um, and at some point, somebody yelled, said, hey, we need some people around the back of the building. And I took off with a couple of other troopers and Oklahoma City officers and went that way. And the one thing I remember most, I ran right by the firefighter who was carrying Bailey Almond. Just about the time he was about to set her down, I ran right in front of him. And we made it around to the back of the building, and we went in the building. And I, I banked at the credit union in that building, so I was familiar with it. In fact, I had been in that building the week before, the credit union getting a loan. And I went with a couple of civilians were already in the building, and I started up the back stairwell, went all the way to the top floor. And there were civilians in there screaming, hollering, looking for people. And I said, hey, guys, let's do this organized I said, we're going to go to the top floor. We're going to do a systematic search and come all the way down. 
And the first three floors, the staircase, you had to climb over debris. I mean, large chunks of concrete, rebar, all kinds of stuff. And we got all the way to the top floor. And just about the time we got to the top floor, I looked out the back window and there was no one around the building. I mean, absolutely no one. And I looked out the front and there's no one around the building. And I said, guys, I don't know what's going on, but we shouldn't be here right now. I said, let's get down these stairs. Let's get out of this building immediately. And we took off down the back stairwell as fast as we could. And we got out the back and I ran towards the east. And when I looked down towards the federal courthouse, there was a guy down there motioning with both hands, screaming, run, run, run. I ran as fast as I could and got all the way down. And they said they found another bomb. And so we circled the federal building. And then about probably an hour later, they gave the all clear. And we were told to go to the command, uh, mobile command, and check in. And we went over there and checked in with, with our brass. And they said, who all has been in the building already? And there were several of us. And they said, you're going back to the building as soon as they give the all clear. So that's where I spent the remainder of the day was in the building. I mean, I was literally from the basement all the way to the top floor. It was a really long day. And like Larry said, the one, the one thing that stuck with me the most was the smell. And it was, if you've ever opened a bag of cement and you get that quick crete and you dump it out and you get that powder smell, that's was just the air was thick with that because of the way that the, the building had blown up and all the concrete that was in the air. And to this day, if I smell that, it flashed back in my head because it was just, it was everywhere. And then it started to rain, didn't it? It, it started, started to rain. To, it got yeah. wet. That was about 7 o'clock. It started to rain. They wanted us out there because the building started shaking. And right. So that's when we went back um, to the command post. I, I never went. They ordered us back to the command post at one time. I guess when he went back the first time yeah. and got sent back, I didn't go back. to. Me and Craig stayed there, right. and we were already committed. So We were already filthy. From being in the building, I had I'd, a piece of glass fell and cut me on the arm. I was bleeding on the arm. I had my uniform was totally trashed. It's amazing how fast. I mean, I know it was downtown, but how fast nurses and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, Norman PD have triage set up in the middle of the street. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing how fast. I mean, we're, we've dealt with it before with all tornadoes and stuff, but it's just amazing. It's not done by one group of people. I mean. I'm there, like I say, less than an hour. I'm already seeing Norman Fire Department and seeing nurses that I know from Norman. And right in the middle of the street, they've, they've set up a triage. Yeah, and that was something that we had really never experienced before, you know, in Homeland before like that. And so, you know, now as a younger trooper, you know, they teach us that in the academy, the incident command. And we really, they're really versus in like, you know, working together with other agencies and things like that. And I, I know that happened you know, in the past as well, but something so fresh like that, and you kind of had to learn as you went about or the organization and making that work and uh, that, you know, uh, the lessons, talking about the lessons that we've learned from it, yeah. you know, and, and trying to find some good from it. Uh, we definitely have, you know, looking back. That's mm -hmm. that that's kind of funny that you bring up how we've uh, grown from this because Mike knows exactly what I'm talking about. Back then, the academy, when you left the academy, 
uh, a first aid kit was a tackle box. Yep. Now it's, and I don't even, I don't have a first aid kit now uh, because we you can't get the supplies for them or uh, it's the smaller bags. But we went from a tackle box, which you don't have time to grab, right. and to now we've gone into a duffel bag that's a lot more convenient. It's got the immediate care needs. The immediate, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. You can strap it on your back. You know, back then I said, yeah, that tackle box was hilarious looking. And I'm assuming when this happened, you guys were both pretty young troopers. I've seen the video of you, Lieutenant Saxon. You guys probably didn't have a whole lot of time on. I'd been on, I came on the Capitol in 85 and became a trooper in 91. So I had, I had five, four years on. And I think he's a year I'd out of five, academy. I had five years on. I came out in 1990. So, yeah, I was... Uh, early thirties. Okay. Yeah, it was, it, it irritated me because when we, we spent all that time in the building, then they sent us over to the command post to check in, checked in, they sent us back. And then we got the all clear like one o'clock in the afternoon and it's, it's raining. And they said, okay, you can't go back in the building. They said, you've got to have special training and special equipment. You got to have helmets. Got to have all this because the building's un unstable. And I was like, I've already been in the building. I've been all the way to the top floor, and that just was eating at me. That they told us we couldn't go back in the building because we weren't trained. And what got me the most is when they started carrying the kids out of the daycare. They had them all wrapped in blankets, and they were carrying them out. One at a time, there was this like, they were carried six, seven of them out. And I saw a little girl's foot hanging out from underneath the blanket. She had this frilly little sock on and a patent leather shoe. <clears throat> and I just kind of lost it mentally. And I said, I'm done. I said, I'm going to go look for someone I'm going to go do something, but I can't just sit here and do nothing. And I said, I'm, I told the guys that were around me, uh, which I know there was at least two troopers and uh, Joe Simpson, and there was one Oklahoma City officer. And I said, they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going over here to the basement. I said, I'm going to go in there. There's nobody searching over there. And uh, I said, okay, we'll go with you. And we started over that way, and they said, you can't go in the building. You don't have a hard hat on. And I <laughs> I still don't know who this guy was to this day, but he came running by with about six hard hats, and I, and I stuck my arm out, almost clotheslined him, and I said, give me those. And he said, you can't have them. And I said, you're going to give me those. And he said, yes, sir. And he gave me the hard hats. <laughs> so we all put our little hard hats on, and we went down in the basement, which earlier had had about three foot of water in it. And now it was about probably a foot of water, but we walked, started walking the basement and looking for survivors. And we actually did find a lady that was, had been on the third floor of the building when the bomb went off and she ended up in the basement, worked for the social security office. And she was right underneath ground zero. And it was just a big mass of steel rebar, you know, two and a half inch thick, three-inch thick rebar and concrete and all that. And she was actually, we would walk and we'd yell and then we would listen. And then she she must have heard us because she started tapping SOS 
was what turned out to be the heel of her shoe. And she was under a desk. And when I heard her, I yelled, everybody, be quiet, be quiet. I hear something. And I yelled real loud. I said, if you can hear me, I can hear you tapping. Keep tapping. And that went from tapping to banging. And we had to climb up and over and around. And we finally got back over there. And there was a giant ductwork from an air conditioning system that was probably six feet tall. And the guys boosted me up and over it. And then I dropped down on the other side. And that's where she was. She was back up inside all that debris. And I could talk to her, couldn't see her, couldn't touch her. But um, the other guys all went to go get the Oklahoma City Fire Department. And uh, I sat there, it seemed like an eternity until they got there. And then the firefighters started dropping down in there. It probably took us an hour, hour and a half to get her out. But she had fallen from the third floor, ended up in the basement under a desk. And when she woke up, she said she thought she was going to drown because she was she was pinned and the water was rising and she's screaming and hollering and no one could hear her because like what Larry said with the, the bells going off and water lines that were broken and there was water spraying everywhere and they then later they apparently the fire department pumped most of that water out of the basement but and then the firefighters came in and they cleared out them and the troopers that were they cleared out all that ductwork and strung lights, and we couldn't chip away from the desk that she was hiding under. We had to chip away from the floor to get her out because of the structural integrity of that desk. We didn't want it to collapse. And thankfully, she was a little skinny thing, and we were able to get her out under the desk. And she had a broke femur, if I remember correctly. And uh, her name was Shara Gamble. She worked in the Social Security office. And uh, that that one thing right there made the whole day feel like I actually did something because I think I, – I know she probably would have been, eventually been found by someone else, but the fact that we found her and were able to get her out of there, that, that made the whole day basically seem worthwhile. So I'm sure that is difficult for you guys because you guys are used to kind of showing up on a scene, you know, taking control, knowing what to do, doing something. But when you come up on something like that, like you said, right. you're like, I can't just sit here and do nothing. That's got to be very frustrating. It was it, it, like we were talking the other day. It, it, part of it was and it was proper procedure, I'm not saying it wasn't, but we felt like we got something taken away from it because when we got there, we were in charge because we're Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Then Oklahoma City gets there and they say, no, we're in charge because it's Oklahoma City. Then the feds got there and they were right. They're in charge. It's their building. So, uh, I mean, I kind of joke about it, but that first day was horrible seeing all the stuff that I saw, smelling all the smells and things. I was there for the next 12 days and basically the feds took over. But I got, my, I think my second assignment was the worst assignment. I was assigned to the press. <laughs> and this is where we... I felt sorry for the press because they kept changing the passes on them every day. So we'd have to tell Dan Rather, you can't come in. Didn't mind telling Connie Chung she couldn't come in anymore after the remark she made. And I think from this day, since that day, she's just kicked off there and never allowed back on. Then Geraldo and the sneaking in the morgue with the fire suit incident. Uh, your senator, state senator, your U.S. senator, your congressman. 
walking up to your gate saying, I I need to come in and you have to tell him, no, he can't come in because he doesn't have a pass. And he's looking at you like, no, I'm coming in. You're going, no, you're not. And you don't know whether, you know, luckily I was in Norman, but I could have been in Guyman the next day. Right. <laughs> Reassigned. Yeah, but those those were a long 10 days being dealing with the media because, like I said, they changed their pass. I felt like, again, felt sorry for them. But, God, we had, we had rules we had to play by. And, and one of the good things that always comes out of it with these things like tornadoes and stuff, you're well fed. I mean, these people come and make sure you get fed. But they'd put up a fence around a perimeter of a fence the kids on the other side of the fence that were hungry. So most of the time we spent, we'd take them over food, but just the experiences of how people came together and helped each other, you know, it's hard to say tornadoes. I've been in four or five of those. Some kind, sometimes you find some kind of happiness in those tornadoes. You did this, you did. And then this, I mean, there was really no happiness that came from, and we were mad because we were mad who would do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't know what it would, Take two days or three days before they found. Yeah, it's three days because they were getting ready to let him out of jail. Fixing releasing. Yeah. yeah. So. The jailer's the one that made the say. Hey, we that looks like the guy back there in the holding cell. We're fixing to cut loose. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'd said that was probably one of the different things of when you're at a ca- catastrophic event is that that was one of the ones you didn't have. You had one. You had one mood. It was anger. It was mad. It's cold. Um, yeah, and there and there's nothing you could do anymore because now the the feds were in charge and, and we were, we were glad to, glad to help them. It was such a massive scale too, and you don't. It's just like you know the old saying: How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? But well, you got to pick your where you're going to start. You're going to start on the tail. You're going to start on the trunk because you walk up and see that building and shambled. You didn't know if it was going to collapse. And and you said about one of the things that you learned from this, and this is, you know. One of the one of the good reasons I wanted to do this is we've learned so much because yeah. it's kind of I don't mean to laugh at it, but after our t- ten days of being at the scene, seeing all we've seen, we were told go back to work and work a re- regular shift. <laughs> then yeah. apparently somebody said, you know, I think we ought to give these guys some yeah. psychiatric help or at least give them opportunity. But what they did, they brought us in about ten days after that and had us all in a classroom with a psychiatrist um, and he just looked at everybody. There's probably 50 or 60 of us in there. And he says, you're going to have problems. You're going to have issues. You're going to have some breakdowns. Yeah. If you want to talk about it, now, it's time to talk. Well, about that it. mental health issue is huge. And, and we're, you know, we're starting to actually talk about it now that, you know, we, we put that aside and uh, we've got a podcast coming up soon uh, where we're going to, you know, spend some time talking about that. But right. But so in this situation, it, again, it's a learning situation. Right. But in this situation, you got 40 guys in a room or 40 men in the room. And because I don't think there was a female. Tommy. And I, oh, that's right. Tommy, to, Tommy yeah. Cops is there. Um, but you've got 40 people in there and you've got a, a doctor or a psychiatrist saying, if you want to talk about your problems, now's the time right. to do it. I'm not going to talk about problems I'm having. Right. Yeah, we're so, state troopers. We're right. we're ten foot tall bullets. But I know we don't learned. we don't need to talk about our problems, right. especially with the guy you work with. That was the mentality with. back yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. And if you talk in front of your your uh, coworkers, that's a sign of weakness. Right. Yeah. So, because you just you just don't want to do it. Right. And I was telling Sarah the other day. I mean, again, this is that same year I was involved in a shooting, and I shot the guy, and I was back. Shot him at two o'clock in the morning. 
They had my shooting review board that same morning at seven o'clock in the morning, I mean, nine o'clock in the morning, went to the gun shop and got my gun back and saw the psychiatrist and was back at work at seven o'clock that night, which that's unheard of now. What is the minimum oh. of 30 days before you go off? Uh, before you can come back to work. You at least had the 10 day. I, the very next day when I went 10, eight, they said traffic as usual, go back to work. They said, I said, wait a minute. I want to go back down to the building. I mean, that's all I could think of when I got home was get back down there. There's got to be more people. We got to do more things. Uh, and nope, let's go back to traffic as normal. Well, that's not possible. Uh, it, it rained for like a week straight after that bomb went off. And and they brought in troopers from all over the state. But they said, we're going to put them around the building. We want you guys to work the metro. Of course, metro is a is an environment that not everybody can handle because it's just different, the sheer volume of traffic and the number of crashes. And, I mean, when you're out in a rural county, and, and I'm not knocking rural troopers, believe me, because they do a totally – their job is different than a metro trooper. But if you get on a two-lane highway and you stop a car, you may have a half dozen cars go by you while you're on that traffic stop. Up here, you may have two, three hundred go by while you're on a same traffic stop or more. And the metro is just a totally different animal, and they didn't want to put the county guys in that situation. Not that they couldn't have handled it. They just didn't want them to have to handle it. And so they stuck them around the Murrah building, and they stuck the guys that were used to working the metro back out working traffic. Well, we didn't want to be out there. We wanted to be back down at the building. We wanted to be back down there and be part of it in any way we could, even if it was manning a post and we weren't weren't allowed to go back down. So I didn't you go, didn't go back down there? I didn't go back down there for about eight or ten days. And the, and the only reason I was allowed to go back down there was because I had to take something to the command staff at the mobile command post. And that was the first time. It was like nine, ten days after the bomb went off that I finally got to go back down to the scene. And see, I was, I was telling Sarah that I've, I've never been back. I've never been uh, to never see been. it. Never been inside. It took me till my youngest son, which he was born about 10 months after the bombing. Uh, it took until he got up school age and started asking questions. And he was like 9, 10 years old. And we finally went to the memorial. And that was a very eye-opening experience to go through there and walk through, listen to the recording. And I know they've changed it. They've done a lot of upgrades, and I haven't been back. I just went that one time. But What was that like for you, being back there? A lot of flashbacks. It took me a long time to not go to, when I would go to bed and not have dreams about it. And just just the, the amount of things, which I won't go into, that I saw that day and the way that, People were torn up from the explosion. It was just, and we're used to that. We're used to rolling up at accidents and seeing people in various states uh, of, of injuries. But to see it on such a mass scale, and the we, the little kids is what got me. That just tore my heart out to see those little kids because they didn't do they didn't do anything. They didn't. No one deserved what happened. But most of all, those kids were totally innocent, and they didn't deserve what happened to them that day. It's probably, the, I mean, probably the worst part of this job in the Howard Patrol is, I would say, uh, next to kin notification for accidents. And the reason I bring that up is because 
you have to be a person when you do it. You have to be professional when you do it. But the sad thing about this job is, and like the Murray building and all the fatality accidents that we work, it's when you get to the feeling just when you, when you can look at a body or you, and then the words not care, it doesn't mean it just doesn't bother you anymore. The callous. It's you made, you callous. feel callous. Yeah. You feel like you should feel, and we do feel, but you know, I can walk up to, doesn't bother me. Yeah, we've talked about that in here before. Is just there's two different parts of you. You 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 learn how to switch off a certain part of you and become a working trooper that is working and like you're taking care of things. And the humanity part doesn't come in. And it's very much after the fact, you know, uh, where it does catch up with you. You know, like the Mexican notifications. You know, I've done that before, where I've walked up to the doorstep and I can hear them laughing on the inside before I knock on the door, and I know. It's about to completely change everything, you yes. know? And so that's part of that, you know, it's just we switch on and off so often. And people don't realize that about law enforcement in general is that it has to be that way to work. We have to switch into a working environment. And, and uh, you know, very often we can't be just regular old people. And a lot of times you can't tell them what happened because, and a lot, I mean, I think it's still the same. We make all next to you. Ken notifications. Yes. Uh, every yes. accident we work. Yes. You know, Norman PD, and I and I don't know this, I'm just using an example. Norman PD or Oklahoma City PD, if they're outside their city limits, they don't make they they find out from the hospital. Well, I remember I even got called from Colorado to make a next kin for somebody. And the first thing out of their mouth family is, what happened? I don't know. I can't all I know is, you know. We do we do the only way we're allowed to make one other than in person, if it's an out of state or out of the country, and I've done that a couple of times, but I've been on the phone with the officer in that state when he knocks on the door. And because, like I said, you're, they're going to have questions. What happened? You know, and that's real tough to be on that phone and, and know that you can't be there to try to help. I've had people threaten to slap me, punch me, and I've had people jump up and grab my neck and hug me. And a long, like, two, three-minute hug where they don't want to let go. You never know what you're going to get when you do that. And and like you said, when we walk out the door, I'll clean it up. But my brother used to say, if you want an instant jerk, just put Mike in his brown shirt. Because when you put the uniform on, you flip that internal switch, and you have to. It's a survival mode you go into, and once you, it's hard to get home and flip that switch back the other way. And a lot of people have problems doing with that. They they get to a point in their career where they can't do it anymore, and they just cannot gear down and flip that switch back when they get off duty. I've always been one that's been blessed that I can do that. I just when I'm off duty, I'm off duty. I don't. Yeah, but. It's uh, it takes a toll on you. You do it year after year after year after year. That's why it ends up. I think so many. Uh, there you have a such uh, substance abuse, heart attacks, strokes, everything that goes in line with law enforcement and just the sheer stress of what we do, day in day out, and, and not to mention the, the physical what it does to your body, wearing a gun belt and a bulletproof vest. For all those years, you won't find too many retired police officers that don't have a bad back just from the gun belt and all the equipment because you carry 20, 35. It is a lot. I think all my gear is like 25 pounds. 
And that's just your boots, your gun belt, your vest, everything. And that takes a toll on you. Let's talk about that a little bit. And I'll let you guys, you know, I'll let you determine what kind of detail you're comfortable with sharing. But but the toll that working the Murrah Building bombing took on you and how it affected you and kind of how you how you managed that and how you dealt with it. I know, Lieutenant Saxon, you talked a little bit about the meeting that they called you guys into and nobody really wanted to talk. What was it like for you kind of from from then on? So that was in 1995. I got divorced in 2004. And when I got divorced, my wife said I was never the same after 1995. She said I became a closed, uh, in other words, I didn't show emotions like I did before. You know, I've always been uh, funny and like that, but she just says that changed. I changed that day. Did you recognize it? No. When we had, when we talk about it, no, because I would want to deny it. Looking back, you know, as much as nobody likes to say their ex-wife is right, she yeah, she was right. I mean, <laughs> I just, but I, I found a way, I, f- I found a way to, and I, I really don't even remember how I found a way to hide, I mean, not accept it. I just, just didn't accept it. But, uh, uh, I've seen a lot of stuff of that, but that was, you know, car accidents are different. That would look like a war zone. Dealing with that, you know, mentally and emotionally for you. And kind of maybe, you know, when when you realize, okay, I yeah, I need to I need to deal with this. I can't just, you know, push right. it. Right. And that's side. probably one of the hard things. And Mike, because I don't want to mention any names. Back then we didn't really have somebody we had somebody you go talk to, but you didn't really want to go talk to that that person because that story was going to be told to everybody else. And again, we we weren't comfortable I mean or at least I can always speak for I wasn't comfortable going and talking to anybody about it. Um, uh, and I guess it's a bad mindset suit to have or mindset to have is, well, I can go talk to that person, but they can't help me anyway. You know, what, what's that person going to do for me? What's she going to do to make me feel better? And I will tell you this, you know, uh, it, it does help, but sometimes you can wait too long, uh, I'm not saying I waited too long that I'm run, but I, I, I should have gone. I should have gone sooner. But again, I'll also, they should have done something to let. And again, they didn't know. Maybe they didn't know at the time. Uh, we'd never had a bombing in Oklahoma, uh, so I'm not going to blame it all on them. But I think if it was something would have sooner uh, to talk to or do something, yeah, or, or take a trip off the road for a while. Yeah. All the other agencies that I talk to, I've got several friends that know. Oklahoma City officers, most of them are retired now, and Oklahoma City firefighters, that they were within the very next week after the bombing, they were in group counseling sessions and they were talking about it. And I was told that the department said, well, there's no sense in doing it because you guys won't talk to anybody anyway. And then for the most troopers probably wouldn't have talked to them, you know, not in a group session. I, I'm. You'd have to be one on one really to get me open up about it back then, because it took me months, if not over a year, to get to where it did not bug me. Just the things, and I still to this day, if I close my eyes, there's one picture that very vividly comes back to me that I saw that day that I wish I could get out of my head, but I can't, and I never will. And it was just, uh, it's. I was blessed that my wife 
who I was married to at the time of the bombing. I'm still married. We're still married, coming up on 29 years together. So she's been with me through the whole thing. And uh, But it was really, really, really tough to try to find normalcy after that because you just felt so angry and you felt like, what could we have done different to have stopped it? It bugged me for a long time. I, I think I'm pretty much at peace with it now because we did everything we could do that day. I actually had one of my cousin's ex-wife was one of the fatalities in the murder building, and she was one of the last three that they found when they had imploded the building, and they kept calling me every day going, have they found her, have they found her? Uh, guys, no, they haven't found her. Uh, I mean, I had a pers- real personal connection, and we had a retired trooper that was in there too. Right. I mean, it. you know, it It really, and and years later, I went to church with Bailey Almond's mom. Um, you know, it's just, it just seems like every time you turn around, you think you're past it, something's there to bring it back again. And, you know, uh, Bailey's mom's never, ever going to get over that. I mean, and who could? And uh, I know her personally, and it's just, but she knows I was there that day, but I wouldn't go into great detail. And so it's just, it's one of those things that you, you try to, you just find a way to cope with it. After a certain amount of time, you just, you got to find a way to live with it. It's just like a lot of other stuff, unfortunately, that we see in our line of work, that you have to find a way to bury it and not let the monster get out of the cage. Best way I can describe it. Were there lessons that you guys feel like you learned after that or, or did it, how do you feel like it maybe shaped you in your, in your career and like the path that you took from then on? Do you see how that, that it made a difference that it made an impact that you learned things from it? I'm on that interview at the bombing, uh, the memorial. And I, I think I say in there that it's, you never think it's going to happen in your, your state. Who would have thought it was going to happen in Oklahoma? So I think that changed me that that day that anything can happen anywhere. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the biggest. Oklahoma's not exempt. I always thought Oklahoma was exempt. You know, uh, just like I'd never, I've been in Oklahoma all my life, never seen a tornado until I came on the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Now I've been to like five of them. Yeah. So. Uh, learn to expect anything. Yeah. Learn to expect any. Yeah. You know, it's the one thing that, that I guess I take away from this more than anything was the traffic stop of Timothy guy. Everybody always says, oh, it was just a routine traffic stop for this. It started with a routine traffic stop for a, a pursuit or a gunfight or all that. And that day, that was just a routine traffic stop. We didn't have an APB out. We didn't have anything telling us to be looking for a guy in a yellow mercury Nothing. Just, and I've talked to Charlie Hanger about it several times. He'll just tell you it was just pure luck that he turned around and he stopped that guy. Now, what he did after he stopped him, I mean, taking him to jail for a concealed weapon and him, McVeigh, saying, yeah, my gun's loaded. And he said, so is mine. And he took him into custody. I mean, but he was just doing his job as a state trooper, do what we go out there and we do every day. 
He got a bad guy, bad guy with a gun, took the guy to jail, turned out to be the catch of the century. And if it hadn't have been for that, if he'd have made it back to Kansas, I don't think we'd have ever found him. He'd have went and hid out and found some sympathizers to hide him. And you know, it was kind of closure, I think, when they when they put him, for lack of a better word, put him down I mean, to death. It was a little bit of closure. And I was listening on the radio that day when they did that, listening to it live. Shows you that the routine, maybe what some would consider mundane, everyday things yeah. that you guys do, they matter. Sure. And it, it matters. You you go up there and you don't know if, if that person just committed a murder or just blew up a building. May have his girlfriend in the trunk that he just murdered. You You don't know. You can't take anything routinely with this job. You have to go up there. Like they always say, with a smile on on your face, but death in your heart in case it all goes bad and you have to defend yourself. If the guy comes after you, you have to be able to take care of that situation. Not a not a job to take lightly, and not one everybody can do. Everybody finds that out. That's why our academy is the way that it is. Because if you can't handle the stress in a controlled environment, you'll never handle it in the real world. So ending on a little. Lighter note, you mentioned Lieutenant Sachs in the interview that you did. We ha- we have to bring this up. Um, tell us, so the, so the news kind of came up to you that, that night and, and started interviewing you. And, and tell us what you said and kind of okay. what you and said. My, for my sake, <laughs> I came from Norman, so when I went in the building, I went in the south side of the building. Right. The south side of the building was all intact. So when me and Craig Medcalf came out of the building— they stick these cameras in our face and start asking us questions. And, of course, they asked me, What's it, what was it like in there? And I said, look like a bomb went off. And, of course, in the next two weeks, people are walking, walking up to me going, hey, dumb butt, a bomb did go off. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know that. We, we were on, I went on the other side. Again, we yeah. thought there was a gas explosion, right. but I sure didn't know it was a bomb that went off. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, so I got a I got a hard time, and I still get a hard time with that. So, <laughs> in his defense, from the back, the building looked totally intact <laughs> until you went around to the north side oh, of it. Oh, it's total chaos. Nobody had briefed you on, hey, yeah. here's no. what we're dealing with. And- Matter of fact, when me and uh, Craig Metcalf walked out, we, we, we had to walk around the north side of the building. I'd been there for nine hours. It was raining. It was starting to shake up there in the building. I looked at Craig, and I said, had I known this building looked like that, I wouldn't have gone <laughs> in the building. <laughs> Great kind of joke with me because that's why I took you in the back. But, uh, so there was nothing funny of it, but that that was one of my funny stories, you know, especially with these uh, media people like Sarah. They like to care, catch you off guard. <laughs> and that, <laughs> what we've learned from that, that's why troopers run from cameras. Oh, right. Because they want cameras because they want to catch us with their hat off. So You always direct them to the new guy. That's uh, it. Yeah, the rookie over there. Yeah. I've, I've done plenty of those. He needs the practice. It was in the academy. I don't know if they still do the media relations in the academy. Oh, yeah. Yes. We did yeah. it last year with and them. And we, we know, after sitting there watching it, we know y'all have, y'all have a job to do. And we have a job. We know you're going to, especially in the academy, you're, you're trying to catch us, you know, because like they interviewed <laughs> one of our cadets and they're like going, uh, so uh, this is Memorial Day weekend. Uh, are you going to, wh- what's the plan for this weekend? And, you know, the cadet's sitting there thinking, he's like, going, he said, well, we'll, we'll have uh, more uh, than usual troopers out. And they go, 
of course, the reporter tries to catch him and goes, oh, so y'all have some in hiding and you bring them out sometimes? <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a no-win situation. So, so they brought up a scenario with me. I was about the 15th one to go do the interview. And I was like, and I kept on giving the scenario of you got a cattle truck turned over on I-40 and, you know, cattle are alive, some are dead and they're mooing and all that. And they said, Cadet Saxon, what are you going to do? And again, I knew I this is a no-win situation. So I said, I've got the tact in route. And they're going to kill all the cattle. <laughs> <laughs> everybody started laughing. I was like, it's a no-win situation. <laughs> I've had them walk up to me saying, you know, we're getting ready to film. You might want to go put your hat on. Mm, that's you know, nice. And they're good about that. <laughs> but I'm sure that was an eye-opening experience for you to deal with all the national and international media mm. around the bombing. I'm sure that was... That's oh. quite different than just one reporter well, coming think, up to you. I think, <laughs> I, I, think I got some of the stress relieved off me after what Connie did. Connie Chung did what she did, so they were more after her than they were after me. We appreciate both of you coming in and talking about this. Like I said, I know this. I don't take it lightly that, that you would come in here and share these memories with us. I know that can be difficult for you all. And um, just for people listening, Lieutenant Saxon is now with, uh, He's well, he's been for a long time with Troop R, Capitol Patrol. Yes. And uh, Lieutenant Rowe is with our Troop WR Marine Enforcement. And that's been there for a while as well. And just to add, we were just talking when we got in here, how many of the, what, four of us left that was at the Murray building? I think so. Something along those lines. There's four left that are still with, active with Highway Patrol that also worked. Mm -hmm. Yes. Only four. Yeah, I think there was 13, I believe, that were on the plaque in the training center, if I'm not mistaken. That got Trooper of the Year for. For humanitarianism and Trooper Hanger won it for heroism that year. But there were 13 of us that were actually at the building that were going in the building and doing what we did that day, helping the walking wounded and searching for people and all that. I want to say it was 13. It's And and I want to make sure, just to correct, correct him, there are 13 of us that got the Trooper of the Year, but there were many more oh, DPS yeah. and many more right. troopers, like, came from supply, Showed I mean, up, came right. up from DPS, like, uh, Captain Bill Hughes, Tim Tipton, yes. they're coming all over. So right. I, I didn't want to make it sound like there no, were only no, no. 30 troopers there. I'm there just saying, that DPS was the initial board. response. Right. So we're there probably within the 30 minutes to an hour. I, I was there probably 10 minutes after the bomb went off. I mean, the debris cloud was still going up when I parked my unit. And I think the ones that were the initial first responders that were there within the first 30 minutes to an hour were, and then were actually in the building Doing and, the search and rescue and stuff. And I think a good point I don't made of the day, and I'll leave it this. We have a size and weights feds in that building who Craig had up, Craig was going into a meeting in there less than 15 minutes. That's the reason he was there so close and so fast. And, but yeah, he had, 15 minutes later, who knows what would have happened. He was scheduled for a, a 9.30 meeting and he planned on being there at 9.15. Wow. So you talk about fake. Yeah. Well, we appreciate both of you sharing these memories with us. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. You bet.